Uh, Welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Wednesday, September the 9th. Coming up, we talked about traffic cameras and tickets, Ontario teaching staff walking out over insufficient PPE and COVID concerns, and COVID numbers and a vaccine pause. All of this coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. 22,000 in one month. That's how many tickets Toronto's new speed enforcement cameras issued between July the 6th and August the 5th. And at a presser yesterday, Mayor Tory actually calling out one motorist who got caught speeding by the cameras. How about this? A dozen times. Twelve times. Dave Perry is a former Toronto police officer. He's 640 Toronto's crime expert and joins us now here to discuss on Global News Radio. Hey, Dave, good afternoon. There we go. We got him up here now. Hey, David. I got you. You got me? Copy. Okay. <laughs> Just trying to take you back to your old days on the force. Uh, okay. <laughs> 22,000 in one month. Does that number surprise or shock you? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, we're all driving out here every day and see all the idiots that are on the road. And there is there's never a shortage of them that think they can do double the speed limit and run through red lights and carry on the, as if the, the roads were their own. So not the least bit surprised, but I sure think that this looks good on them. Okay. Why is it, do you think, that we've got so many speeders? Before we get to the uh, cameras and whether they'll solve the problem or not, is it just because we live in this hurry-up society, this age, and all of the congestion uh, in the city, and everybody's five minutes uh, late to be somewhere? Is that kind of what's driving or fueling this, or is it something else, do you think? I think a lot of it is the entitlement that people think that they have when it comes to driving. We always drove home the message that driving is a privilege, it's not your right, but a lot of people think it's their right, and they think it's their right to drive the the way they wish and completely disregard the the rules of the road, including speeding. So the good news is these cameras are going to start hammering these people that gentleman that uh, the mayor mentioned that received multiple tickets well his license is going to be gone and that's what should happen to somebody who's chronic and you know decides to do whatever they want on the road so i think that's the good news that's going to come out of this you're going to see a lot of these chronic bad drivers lose their license and not be able to drive anymore okay so you're in favor of these cameras then dave you think they'll make a real difference yeah, I do. I think um, <clears throat> any technology that we can add to the regular enforcement that police officers do every day is is good to, towards road safety. And, uh, you know, it's just about time that we do something else to, to try and get people to pay attention and to actually follow the rules. Well, you know, the argument against speed cameras, of course, is it does nothing to stop it in the moment when it's, you know, paramount. When somebody's speeding through particularly a school zone, it only punishes somebody after the fact. And, of course, in a way, it's a license to speed. If you can afford it, then who really cares? Do you buy any of that? No, I don't, because the same could be argued. You get stopped in a radar trap and you uh, decide as soon as the officer's out of sight that you go back to your regular pattern of driving well you you can do it that way as well here's the difference uh it, it it's not about money there might be people out there that can afford to pay these tickets on a regular basis but their license won't hold that you know you've only got so many demerit points and once you lose your license and you're suspended but you can't drive anymore and some will argue that there will be people and this will happen frequently that will drive regardless of being suspended or not well then the uh, the bar gets raised in terms of penalties and what happens to you in court to the point where you could even be arrested and put in jail. So the end 
results will be that people who just refuse to obey the, the rules of the road eventually are going to lose their license and they're going to pay for it in a very big way. Dave, what would you say to critics of these speed cameras who say that this is nothing more than a revenue tool, that uh, all they've got, uh, you know, city officials are dollar signs in their eyes here. They see 22,000 tickets in one month and they're thinking, okay, well, that's a great revenue stream. And that's uh, really what's uh, fueling this. No, you know what? There, there are things that come out from time to time, and I'm not even just talking in enforcement and policing that have that appearance of just being a revenue stream. But, you know, we, we've all been seeing what's been happening lately. There are way too many stories of, you know, families being wiped out by drivers like this, uh, serious injuries and people having their lives changed forever over somebody's indulgence in speed and, and the thrill of speeding and their entitlement, and it's time for it to stop. So, you know, you could look at it that way if you want. Who cares? Uh, the reality is is that the, the whole purpose of this is to try and enforce the rules and get people to slow down. If they don't, they're going to lose their license, and then they won't have a choice whether they slow down or not. And, and I, I quite frankly like it. I mean, like you, Jeff, I drive a lot. I'm on the road every day. I see these ridiculous moves. I see people blowing by me at double the speed limit with no regard for anybody's safety, and, and that has to stop, and this is a good way to do it. Yeah, talk to us a bit about, I know you worked traffic for a while in your career, and tell us a bit about uh, speed and why that matters. I mean, we hear all the time from police that uh, speed is the number one factor in traffic accidents and that uh, speed kills. I mean, just how devastating is this problem? Well, you know, cars are designed to absorb a certain amount of impact, and in part, our, our road speeds are designed to uh, correlate with that damage, and especially when you're talking about on the highways. Of course, in towns and cities and school zones, it's all geared about, you know, the pedestrian uh, issues and so on. But as soon as you add that speed factor, there are two things that are happening. Number one, you're testing the driver's skills, and that shouldn't happen on public streets. And uh, number two is that all of us are sort of hardwired to accept a certain speed with our, you know, our senses and our in our vision. And we look and we see a car coming. And sometimes you look like you've got plenty of time to either make your maneuver with your vehicle and or cross a road safe safely. And you your your brain hasn't absorbed the fact that that car is actually coming at double the speed you were anticipating, and that's what causes accidents. And of course. The higher the speed, the more damage to vehicles and, of course, to the people in the vehicles and to pedestrians. So it's all about trying to manage it and minimize the harm to everybody out there and to trying to keep people safe. And it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you know, that's such a good point, Dave. It's not as much the speed. I mean, that certainly is obviously a big issue, but it's also about the stopping and the braking and the ability to uh, react in time and the, the car to be able to uh, stop at certain uh, speeds. And I think people kind of, with today's cars and technology, it's so good, they kind of fool themselves, don't they? They don't have that same, I think, maybe appreciation for speed as maybe, you know, drivers did in the 70s when the cars weren't as uh, sophisticated, that you might have had a little more respect for speed and the machine. Yeah, you got it. And Jeff, has it ever happened to you? Like, you, you go to make a lane change, you check your blind spot, you see a car, but it's so far back that you think it's safe to do so. And by the time you finish your maneuver and put on your signal and about to make that lane change, you suddenly see and feel this whoosh as a car goes by you at, let's say, double the speed limit. And I've been I've been passed at times where it actually shook my vehicle from the, the force of the vehicle going by me so quickly. And that's 
that's when, you know, a split second makes the difference between life and death. And that's when these very, very serious accidents happen. And we've seen the tragedies of, you know, families being impacted, families being obliterated by some idiot who just chose to, to speed and do whatever they want with, with no regard for anybody else's safety. So I, I, like, the, I like the cameras and I think they're going to help. All right, just finally, Dave, do you think the problem, speeding, is it as bad as it's ever been? Because it does kind of feel that way, and we certainly have seen, you know, a spike in stunt driving, particularly early on in the pandemic when the roadways were a little quieter, a little less congested. Yeah, stunt driving has become a little bit of a social media sensation where, there's a lot of people that take it up the next level where they, they not only do it, they, they record it and then post it and they, they're, you know, somehow excited about the number of people that reply and the number of likes they get on social media for their crazy behavior. And, and I watch some of these videos and, and what always amazes me is that the tragedy hasn't unfolded right on video. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of social media, you know, the next person to be the next social celebrity because of some ridiculous stunt that they do on the road. You know, we've seen all the motorcyclists getting together and driving down highways and, you know, doing wheelies and cutting off cars and stopping traffic and so on. So there's a lot more thrill seekers out there now than I think there ever has been. All right. Dave, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, my friend. A lot of people evaluating after the first day back for many yesterday. And there were reports that staff at one Ontario school so concerned about COVID, their COVID concerns so great that they actually walked out yesterday. Liz Stewart is with the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association and joins us now for more here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Liz, good afternoon. Appreciate you coming on. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Uh, do you have any details, any further details over uh, what happened at uh, St. Joan of Arc in uh, Mississauga yesterday? No, not not really. I mean, my understanding is that the uh, the teachers on site exercised their rights under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, and they had uh, cause to be concerned, and they, they followed their rights under the Act. And what was their cause of concern? We're hearing it was mostly over a PPE or the lack thereof? Uh, that is my understanding, that it was connected to um, the PPE that had been or, or had not been provided by the school board. Um, and that, you know, it was then addressed. But I think this is um, truly indicative of the problems that we're seeing across the province. Um, whereby, you know, we, we've had buildings where there's no hand sanitizer available. We've had buildings where there's no soap in washrooms. Um, we've had, you know, reports coming in of, of you know, no face masks, um, inadequate PPE. Um, these are all things that we've been hearing coming in from across the province and just, you know, further highlight uh, some of the chaos that has ensued. Um, since, you know, since the government's non-plan, basically. Yeah, can you tell us, what is the school board's responsibility when it comes to PPE at a school like uh, St. Joan of Arc in uh, Mississauga? They're to provide what to teachers? So, so employers are to provide, um, you know, all, all workers um, access to uh, PPE. So it would be, you know, medical grade face masks, for example, as well as... Um, face shields, um, and any other PPE that may be required depending upon um, what area of the building they're working in and what their responsibilities are. 
Um, so there is an expectation that employers provide uh, access to those things to keep employees uh, safe at work. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would be shocked and shaking their head to hear that on day one, the very first day back to school, and this was not available to staff? Well, like I say, I mean, starting last week, uh, when teachers were first back um, all across the province, uh, we were hearing of of differing levels of concern. And I think in part that's because, um, you know, school boards were sort of scrambling to get things in place and to make sure that they could they would have adequate supplies. Um, quite apparently, you know, what we've seen and what we've heard is that that was not the case. Um, and as I say, you know, we're even hearing of, of situations where there's, you know, very little hand sanitizer, if any, available, or certainly last week. So, I mean, th- those are real concerns, but it's, it comes on the heels of the fact that this plan has been so haphazard and so last minute. And quite frankly, the province has not given strict guidelines and orders to school boards about what they must do and what is expected to be in place. They've given these, these you know, this tentative guidelines around, you know, you really should, but it doesn't say you must. And so, you know, what's happening is that, that school boards haven't been able to, to put proper measures in place. And they haven't, you know, in some instances, they just haven't been able to do it or it hasn't occurred when it should have occurred. All right. Just want to be really clear on this, Liz. So the teachers that uh, walked off uh, the job or walked uh, away from the school yesterday out of uh, concern, were they just expecting PPE to be there? Or is that uh, something that uh, was mandated, should have been there, and the government and school boards didn't, didn't live up to their responsibility? It absolutely should have been in the building. I can't talk to that particular instance because I do not have all the details. Sure. Um, But any employee who entered a work site um, should have made available to them whatever PPE is necessary for them in their workplace. Um, For for teachers, it may be medical-grade masks um, that would be necessary they should have expected that upon entering school. If that's not the case, I mean, they would have exercised their rights under the Act, which means, um, you know, we call it a work refusal. Uh, When an employee says, I don't feel safe uh, engaging in this work at this time because, you know, the reason would be in this instance, you know, they did not have access to the protective equipment that they required, which was, you know, medical-grade face masks. Um, And then, you know, the employer would then find that equipment and make sure it is given to them so that they could then continue in their workplace, which is what I believe happened. Yeah, it's not a supply problem then. I know we heard early on with first uh, responders, they had a real tough time getting a hold of like N95 uh, masks, uh, surgical grade uh, masks and uh, protection. But this, as far as your concern, is not a supply issue. It's just uh, uh, a lack of clarity and, and rules. For example, if you've got X amount of teachers, you need X amount of uh, PPE on hand. And if you've got so many people in the building, you should have this much hand sanitizer. That sort of thing's not spelled out. Well, I, I think there's a there's a few things that aren't spelled out, but um, I, I don't know whether it's the fact that school boards don't have the required supplies on hand, 
or if they just weren't able to distribute them or didn't get them distributed in time. So, I mean, I don't want to, like I say, I don't want to talk about a particular instance because I don't know what the, what the underlying cause may have been. Um, I just know that we had um, members who felt unsafe in their workplace. They exercised their rights um, and the situation was resolved. Okay, has the uh, association, your association, uh, been in consultation with school boards or with uh, the ministry, the Ministry of uh, Education? If so, how receptive, how collaborative have they been in this whole process? Um, Well, we have been trying desperately to collaborate on return to school since March, Um, practically since the day schools closed, because once you close them, you know, you have to reopen them. Um, So we've been wanting to be part of that dialogue. Um, That has not occurred um, to the point where we believe, you know, we have been heard, Um, understanding that we're one of many voices, Um, but knowing that we bring to the table that practicality um, that is so important about what happens in, in classrooms, what takes place in schools all across the province. Um, So our frustration would be that we really don't believe we've been part of that conversation. We believe there's been a colossal lack of leadership um, on the part of the provincial government. They basically threw it back to school boards and said, you know, go ahead and make your plans, which school boards did in good faith. And then we're told, you know, some of them just now or very recently that all of a sudden their plans weren't okay and they had to go revamp the plans that they had which has created um, many different situations all across the province, not just pertaining to, you know, health and safety measures, which, you know, as you know, we have a complaint before the Labour Board right now around that issue, but also around, you know, class sizes, how classes are being uh, constructed, how, um, you know, online learning is going to take place. I mean, we have some boards in this province that believe it's a good idea just to put a webcam in a classroom and call that their online program. And that is just patently ridiculous because it does not meet the needs of the students who are, who are doing the learning from home. And it also detracts uh, teacher valuable attention from the students who are before them in a classroom. So, I mean, having this haphazard approach across the province um, has been detrimental, I think, uh, to to the startup, but I know that you know teachers and education workers across this province, and quite frankly, administrators in school buildings as well, are consummate professionals and are doing the very best they can. Just finally, uh, Liz, what were you hearing from your members? How did day one overall go? If you were to give it a grade, uh, it doesn't sound like an A plus to me. But uh, would you at least give day one a passing grade? No, no, I wouldn't give it an A+. Plus. Um, I will tell you that first day of school, uh, not only for students, but for, you know, those of us that work in education as well, is often one of the most exciting days, right? It's the day when you get to meet those, those new people that you're going to get to know so well throughout the year or throughout the semester. Um, you know, this year it's been met with a lot of trepidation and a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, and, and we've certainly heard that from our members, that that continues. Um, but I know that they were all so happy to be back with their students, even with all of this anxiety and even with all of the concerns that they have. 
Um, I, I know certainly what we've heard from our members is just how very happy they are uh, to be with their students again and able to do what they love to do in classrooms across the province. But, you know, they're relying on us to keep on fighting for them and, and for their students to get more put in place to keep everybody safe. Liz Stewart with the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. Liz, thank you for the update and the time this afternoon. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Jeff. You take care. Uh, the COVID case count, uh, 149 in the province today, if you haven't heard uh, the latest uh, numbers. That is down from the 185 yesterday and the 190 the day before. But obviously, you know, 150 cases, uh, you know, f- near 500 now, a little over 500 in uh, three days. Sparking concern. So much so that the uh, province announcing yesterday a pause in the relaxation of COVID restrictions. And joining us now for more on that is Dr. Ray Watt-Dionandan. He's an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa, and he joins us here on Global News Radio. Doctor, nice to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, the province, as I mentioned, will pause the relaxation of restrictions. And I guess that left a lot of people wondering, Doctor, like, what what's left? Is there anything that hasn't been uh, opened? Like, uh, what does this mean exactly? Do you know? It's, it's a good question. It's a first question. I think what they mean is lifting the plans to raise the number of people allowed per gathering. So right now, what is it, 50 per like wedding or something like that, and 10 per per, per dinner? I think uh, the plan was to raise that to maybe 20 and 100 or something like that. So now that's on hold, which is a good thing. It should be on hold. I think we're in a dangerous time right now, and now is not the time to allow or encourage greater socialization. Well, is it even enough with 149 new cases today? And as I mentioned, near 400 uh, the past two days, uh, 48 hours, is just, uh, you know, kind of backing off or pausing that uh, relaxation of restrictions enough, or do we need to do more? I think we might have to do more. Look at BC. They were actually taking a further step of going backwards and closing some things. So right now we're in a dangerous time, as I said. The numbers are climbing. Uh, People are going back to work. The schools are opening, which is really dangerous. And uh, the weather is getting bad, so people are going back inside. Add to that cold and flu season is on its way, and we're in for a chaotic time the next uh, few weeks and months. So... It's not only should we be putting a stop to certain opening plans, maybe reconsider the things we've already opened up. Yeah, you mentioned uh, B.C. They're going to reimpose restrictions, just not put a pause on relaxing them. But uh, they're actually closing nightclubs and uh, banquet halls. That makes good sense, uh, you think, from a medical standpoint? It really does. And, I mean, it pains me to say that because I like nightclubs and bars and restaurants, too. But uh, this disease has this ridiculous and dangerous tendency to just explode out of nowhere if people are the least bit non-vigilant. And so far, we've proven that we cannot be trusted with this freedom, at least not to the extent that we need to be. So until the school opening is secured and we know where we are with that situation, I think it's best to do our best to dial down the number of cases in our community. Remember, the most uh, easiest and the most powerful way to keep students and families safe during the school reopening is to keep the community caseload as low as possible. That probably means closing down the bars and nightclubs. Okay, and what about schools? Back to school uh, yesterday for a lot of the uh, province. It's a bit of a a staggered start. Uh, The Toronto uh, board, I think it's September 15th, is the uh, first uh, date. 
Uh, we were talking uh, last hour with the representative of the uh, Teachers Federation. Uh, there was one uh, school in Mississauga, doctor, that uh, teachers walked out because it was an unsafe uh, environment. They felt not enough PPE. Are these uh, real concerns that we uh, need to be taking uh, seriously that we're hearing from uh, teachers, students, parents, and back to school in general? Well, certainly a perception can be reality. So if you feel safe, you won't be safe. We, we've done everything that we can. We could have done more. Let's be honest. We could have done more. We could have invested in smaller class sizes and better ventilation, et cetera. We haven't. So we have what we have to work with. Keep in mind that right now the incidence rate is pretty low compared to other parts of the world. So it's as safe as it's going to be. I like to think of this as a four-tiered plan. The first tier is you keep it out of the community, as I mentioned. But if it gets into the community, you keep it out of the school. Then if it gets into the school, in the school, you keep it from spreading in the school. If it's spreading in the school, you keep it from getting out of the school back into the community. So even though we might not have had all the tools we need to prevent the spread within the school and to prevent the preventing from the school, from the community into the school, we can still do our part to keep it out of the community, which is why everyone has to understand that everyone's got a role to play. Even if you don't have kids, you've got a role to play by wearing your mask and the distancing and not going to those parties. I sound like a broken record, but that people need to hear that their responsibilities have not diminished. They've actually increased. Now, we're talking about nightclubs being closed down again in uh, B.C. Meanwhile, in Ontario, we also found out uh, yesterday that the casinos are going to be reopening. And I wanted to get your take on that. And I don't mean to be flip about this, but doesn't it seem like life is enough of a gamble already? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, casinos can be made safer than other things like nightclubs because in casinos, people tend not to go there to meet other people. You go there to sit alone and play your slot machine or to sit with three other people and play cards. So some games can be closed off, like, you know, the things that require intimate gathering. Large poker tables should be closed down, but a blackjack table with a plexiglass barriers could be useful. Slot machines can be made safe. But yeah, if I had my way, these things would be closed for the time being until we get a sense of where we stand, because we're right now a little uncertain about what the trajectory is for the disease across the province. Do you think with another 149 new cases in the province reported today, and by the way, we have, uh, despite the fact the case count is down a little, it's still the same infection rate. Uh, Do you think that we are in a second wave already? Well, this wave terminology isn't a scientific terminology. We we tend to think of this as one big wave rolling across the world. And to the extent that it resembles a wave locally, that has to do with human behavior again. So we knew that we'd see an uptick of cases. Whether that uptick is of a rate and a speed that is similar to what we saw back in February and March is yet to be seen. If that's the case, then yeah, we have this thing that most people would call a second wave. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, Let's wait and see. Now, I'm fond of saying that even though this increase in cases is almost inevitable, given the the, the challenges that we have, what isn't inevitable is that it has to be disruptive. So again, if we really take seriously the public health measures, this increase, the second wave, as it were, doesn't have to be so large that it disrupts our lives. Joined by Dr. Raywat Dionandan at the University of Ottawa. Doctor, also wanted to ask you this afternoon about uh, what was considered to be the most promising COVID vaccine, this Oxford vaccine, called that because uh, researchers are working at the University of uh, Oxford. It's now been put on pause after a participant got what they're calling an unexplained illness. What do we know about this? So 
Randomized controlled trials are frequently put on pause when an adverse event is detected, uh, especially one that is unexplained. So one person on the trial, I think, has transverse myelitis, which is an inflammation of the spinal cord, which is a fairly serious condition. So you pause to investigate whether as a result of the vaccine. They might have been in the control group. We don't know. They might have had a coincidence. We don't know. So we give them time to figure that out before they continue the trial. So this is not a reason to panic. It's just a reason to really be, be confident that they're taking the appropriate precautions to make sure their safety is good. I think we can confident from that. And I hope the anti-vaxxer movement doesn't run with this by saying, ah, the vaccine causes transverse myelitis. There is no evidence for that just yet. Yeah, so is this a setback or is it too early to tell? It's way too early to tell. As I said, pauses are very common in randomized controlled trials. So let's just wait and see what the investigation uh, unfolds. I, I suspect they'll restart the trial in a couple of weeks, if not before then. Okay, so will that uh, push back any chance of it, uh, I don't know, seeing the light of day being approved by the end of the year, early uh, next year? Does that uh, push all of these uh, dates uh, further into the future? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. So it'll push it. Exactly the amount of time it takes to do the investigation. Might now unlikely, but it might. But again, I take confidence from this. It tells me that the drug companies running these trials are serious about maintaining people's safety and aren't cutting any corners. So we should all, you know, feel good about that. Absolutely, Dr. Raywat Dionanden. Doctor, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that does it for the Jeff MacArthur Podcast on this Wednesday, September the 9th. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder, you can listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 Eastern Time on 640 Toronto at 640toronto.com or search my name, Jeff MacArthur, on Spotify or, of course, wait for it, wherever you get your podcasts.